Okay, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It is April 17th, Monday morning, 10.30 UAE time, and Brent crude oil is opening in Asia today. Essentially, little changed, uh, bouncing around a few cents. Let's kick off with our regular morning, Monday morning commentator, Omar Najia, Global Head of Derivatives at BB Energy. Uh, Omar, it feels like a market looking for direction. What will give this market its essence, its next direction? I mean, all said and done, we've been stuck at $85, Brent, for most of the year, few sort of moments with the banking crisis, but otherwise it's all been $85 brand. Where, what's going to give this market some new direction? Um, well, I mean, if you look at the market in the last um, two, three weeks, basically, we set a low uh, around 64 WTIs, whatever it was on Brent, $70 or so. Um, and then basically the the action of that low has been very emphatic. Um, and after about a week of basically price moving straight up, OPEC came and said that they're going to cut production and that set the price even higher. Uh, so I think the market has all it needs. I don't think it needs constant feeding of, uh, you know, here we go, you've got to go higher, you've got to go higher. I think it's going to do that on its own. So I think uh, the market, I mean, it depends because... If you look at all the news that's come out, first it was like, you know, China, and then it was, well, maybe not. And then next, last week, it was more about, uh, you know, the EIA was saying, and, and will it really, and all this, right? So, so the answer to everything is yes, the price is going to go up. Uh, uh, the pass of uh, uh, lease resistance is up. I think basically the fact that the EU has this uh, cap on euros at 60 and a cap on uh, products uh, at uh, whatever it is, $45 <laughs> a barrel is going to be uh, extremely interesting. I think basically there's uh, what I term kind of uh, free money. If you push the price way past that, um, I think people are going to start to panic because they're going to have to start to decide in the West if they're going to pay these prices or they're basically going to end up with uh, no fuel at all. It's also interesting that Germany's stopping its nuclear-powered stuff. I mean, you know, you, you, you couldn't write a better story for higher oil prices and the fact that everybody's so convinced that, you know, everything is going to be okay and, and um, you know, uh, nothing's going to, you know, uh, and OPEC might or might not cut again. And, you know, I think basically they've taken a strategic decision. I think the decision of Russia to cut 500,000 before OPEC decided to cut, it, cut its 1 million is something that was coordinated. I think basically that Saudi Arabia is moving out of the US orbit. I think that the EU is, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So nothing has changed. I think, as I was saying last week, and I think the week before that, we're now looking quite, you know, higher in terms of uh, the price of Brent, uh, the price of uh, products, uh, and so on and so forth, higher. Jamie Ingram, Senior Editor of Middle East Economic Survey. Do you concur with that, Jamie? I mean, it seems that uh, uh, despite the sort of optimism from the beginning of the year that China would deliver, it's been of a limp re recovery. Uh, there's no shortage of oil in the world, it would appear. Where will this higher momentum come from? As I said earlier, it seems we've been stuck at our in and around $85 bread for months now. 
Yeah, good morning, Sean. Great to be here again. Um, yeah, as you say, China China's a big unknown in this. There's there's bulls, there's bears on that case. Obviously, the key downside risk at the moment has gone away from the headlines a little bit, but we're still, you know, still got this issue of potential banking crisis on the horizon. You know, hasn't been an immediate contagion from the Credit Suisse fallout, but you know, there's still gremlins lurking in the machine there. Who knows what's going to happen if? Uh, you know, it looks like the Fed is expected to increase interest rates again. So that's going to put more stress into the system. Um, there could be more banks suffering from that as a result. Um, we're seeing diesel demand not kicking up to where people were expecting it to be. That's always a little bit of a, a bellwether of the global economy there. So the IEA is actually expecting uh, diesel demand to fall this year, I believe. Um, that's not that's not the norm, especially when you're coming out from a low demand period. So yeah, there's still alarms there on the global economy and what the impact of that's going to be on uh, on oil demand and ultimately on oil prices. The situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis where we're going on um, the storage, floating storage, or not necessarily intended to be floating storage, but nonetheless, there is a lot of floating storage as a result of the longer trips. Matthew Wright, Senior Freight Analyst at Kepler, what role is that playing in, in, in essence, a kind of a downward pressure on prices? Because some calculations would say there's over a billion barrels of oil uh, or some significant large number of oil uh, in some element of floating storage. Yeah, good morning. Thanks very much. Um, I don't think it's floating storage. I think it's it's crude on water. And 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 as a result, I don't think it's having a, an impact on price. It's these are cargoes that are that are all going places. They're just traveling further than they they have ever have done before. So generally speaking, there's no distressed cargoes. There's not really any market structure incentive to to store crude. So it's all going somewhere. It's just, you know, we're taking up a lot of ships to move a lot of oil at the moment. And where is that being reflected? I mean, is there a is there a um, is there a, 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 a technical definition of where floating storage separates from taking a longer time to get somewhere? I mean, ultimately, yeah. it's a lot of oil, right? That yeah. that is uh, moving slowly, but ultimately, uh, have a, the supply is is plentiful. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there's different definitions of floating storage. You can some people say, you know, anything over seven days, but, the, you know, you have to have a vessel that's essentially idled. So, you know, at Kepler, we have um, we have an algorithm that will work that out for us. And floating storage is, 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 is not really on the rise. But as you said, you know, actual crude on water, um, uh, you know, it's it's at sort of near record highs. And a lot of that is to do with Russia. So the changes in terms of destinations of uh, Russia's um, customers has ma changed massively in the last year. I think we've, we've, we've almost reached a peak with how much more we can see Russia ship to India and China. It's, it's pretty much maxed out. There's almost nothing going into some of the shore haul destinations. So there's, there's potentially a little bit of increase from Russia, but not a huge amount. But some of the, some of the other factors that have pushed crude on water to record highs is the U.S. And, and actually the Middle East as well. So a lot of U.S. crude went to Asia um, over March and into April. So that's had a big that's had a big impact, lifting the amount of just volume on water. But also the Middle East, we saw a lot of Saudi crude um, come out in the last month or two. So that's helped. That's definitely helped push that up. Generally, you know, lifting tanker demand. Their freight rates have been 
exceptionally high for over a year now. There's a lot of volatility, but you know they, they're they're sort of holding at pretty high levels. Um, you know we are we're still hugely above all pre-invasion levels in terms of freight rates. Omar, I mean, we last week was. Uh defined primarily, at least from a headlines point of view, the uh, IMF World Bank meetings in Washington, generally the narrative combined with uh, economic forecasts out of the US, uh, but also less sort of, uh, you know, somewhat dampening outlook from China as well. But ultimately, the World Bank IMF forecasts were for global growth to be sluggish to declining uh, how does that coexist with a higher sort of sort of progressively higher climb in in oil prices while the global economy according to the IMF and the World Bank is going in the other direction from your analysis how do those two things coexist going forward I mean that's that's a really interesting question but uh, just just to go back on uh, storage if the market is, is if the market is backwardated there is no storage by definition nobody stores or you lose money so unless you want to lose money nobody's storing anything um, uh, on the uh, on the question about the coexistence that's something that I think about a lot so basically uh, you know these these forecasts I mean um, if Anytime I look at something to do with the S&P or something to do with equities in, in Europe, they look really unbelievably bearish. In other words, they look like they, they, they need to kind of collapse. But I mean, you know, like 30, 40 percent, they, they, they really do look uh, terrible. On the other Sorry, hand, what needs to collapse 30, 40 percent? Equity, equity prices. Equities. Look at the biggest market out there, which is the S&P, right? right? So I think the S&P needs to really come off. Then you look basically at crude, and crude is giving you the opposite picture. Same if you look at, at copper. So, you know, as in we've, we've had, you know, that heating oil or, or distillates is supposed to be an indicator of, you know, market or, or, economic, or economic strength. You look at copper. Copper looks to me like it wants to head substantially higher. You look at oil. Oil looks like it wants to go substantially higher. Then you look at equities, and equities look like they want to go substantially lower. Now, you know, at the end of the day, things can be correlated. It depends on what kind of, you know, day, week, month. Uh, sometimes they move together. Look at, look at, for example, uh, Bitcoin and the uh, and Nasdaq. And then at some point, they kind of, you know, diverge. So I don't know what the, the real world explanation is going to be, but uh, why why oil should rise and, and equities should fall. I, I, honestly, I don't know. But I think, um, um, you know, there's a first time for for everything. Maybe this is it. So well, we're certainly um, seeing a lot of uh, a lot of firsts, uh, no doubt about that. And counterintuitive uh, uh, outcomes uh, that we haven't seen uh, before. Jamie, we still have some old fashioned tangible realities, of course, uh, and that is supply and demand inventories the just starting with the situation in iraq in in kurdistan the exports of kurdish oil which was meant to restart to turkey now looks like it might be sort of stuck for a while as turkey and iraq baghdad and ankara cannot find agreement on restarting, on 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 uh, on implementing the decision by the International Arbitration Court in Paris. Yeah, absolutely, Sean. That's an interesting one. I mean, Turkey kind of blindsided a lot of observers by 
know, implementing the original court ruling so quickly, nobody expected them to suddenly say, yeah, we're going to turn this pipeline off um, when they did. Uh, and then that kind of pushed Iraq and the KRG together, right? Okay, we, we both need this pipeline operational. We need to come to an agreement so that we can get Turkey to turn this thing back on again. They came to an agreement quicker than, again, most people expected them to. And suddenly Turkey's like, mm, hang on, we're not actually going to open this pipeline now. We did have our own other reasons why we why we took this action in the first place. Um, so at the moment, Turkey is basically holding back because they're worried that Iraq, um, you know, so the original ICC ruling was for a period where Turkey owes Iraq damages from 2014 to 2018. There's clearly the potential for damages from 2018 and beyond, and that will be in a future court ruling potentially. So Turkey wants Iraq to take that off the table. So they're saying, we'll open this pipeline, but we want guarantees that you will not come at us for future uh, damages for enabling KRG exports. Uh, there's also issues about water rights, you know, these kind of long-standing geopolitical issues um, about, about the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that's, you know, stretched down from Turkey into Iraq. So these issues are kind of all being bundled together. And that's why we've got this geopolitical issue that is taking um, about four to 500,000 barrels a day of crude oil exports from northern Iraq off the table. That's something that effectively, I think we're not going to see much movement on the surface until bang, we've got an agreement signed and sealed. But that there's massive uncertainty over how long this could could stretch on for. Turkey doesn't have a huge incentive at the moment to play nicely. The where does it just Jamie to follow up on that? Does it intersect with the uh, committed output cuts that are to come into effect uh, from OPEC plus on May 1st? Of course, Iraq has uh, committed to be part of that, I think 150,000 barrels or something. Yeah, it's somewhere in that range of 150, 200,000. I'm not sure off the top of my head exactly. Um, I mean, certainly for as far as Iraq is concerned, you know. Uh, if should the pipeline come back on in mid-May, well, they're going to pump at full capacity because they're going to say, well, you know, we have to offset this uh, involuntary cut that was going on beforehand. Um, and quite frankly, they're probably going to play that card anyways. It is. Um, there's also clearly the fact that these are voluntary cuts, so enforcement mechanisms are not quite as strong as they would be for fully mandated OPEC plus cuts. So again, you know, Iraq's not going to come under quite so much political pressure from the likes of Saudi Arabia if it doesn't quite fulfill its promises. And yeah, this this Turkey issue is certainly something that they're going to use as a card to reduce the level of their cuts at the, the, as far as they can, especially if prices are juicy and there's a big incentive for them to uh, to maximize production wherever possible. Matthew, is it, it was the question I asked Omar there about how can we have the coexistence of these two things, the declining economic outlook and an upward motion in oil prices? I suppose if you cut supply enough, you'll always get some upward motion. But are we seeing that divergence also with the shipping where on the container side, in terms of the biggest routes, China to America, for example, a big, big declines in, in, in container rates, but yet in in um, in tanker rates, we're still seeing elevated. Uh, what's your analysis there on that divergence? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're separate classes and we've got separate supply demand fundamentals. But, you know, you, you hit it on the head, I think. The you know what we're seeing in crude is is um, is independent of the crude of the crude price, but we're seeing um, you know we're seeing the market being stretched. That it's incredibly tight supply of vessels, and it's set to be for the foreseeable. You know, there's not enough deliveries to keep pace with um, the amount of demand. 
And just in terms of the price action we're seeing at the moment, you know, you know, just the point you were making about, you know, KBT and the um, crude coming out of, of, of Turkey, you know, we're essentially the loss to Iraqi production is, is not that far off what the sort of intended cuts are going to be. So we're at a tightness now that is essentially going to be in place and through the rest of the year. And with China coming back, you know, we've got loosening monetary policy, we've got improved mobility. We're, we're going to see, um, quite, you know, the summer should be sort of the tightest period, really, in terms of um, price. And, um, you know, I, you know, we're not as maybe as bullish as some in the market, but we definitely think crude could could rise slightly from where we are at the moment. Um, and that actually does raise a bit of an issue for Russia, because when crude, if crude goes above $90 a barrel, it becomes less and less believable that um, any of the EU or the Greek tankers can continue lifting uh, Russian crude and claiming that this is, um, you know, below the price cap. So then you do, we're going to see a big swing in sort of the vessels that are, that are handling uh, Russian crude. So that $90 a barrel sort of line is, is a bit of an sort of important benchmark, because if we start seeing that, the Greeks are going to have to start doing other business. Um, and... Um, and why then, is that? Because it it would be violating the inter well the laws as set by the G seven and the European Union. Yeah, absolutely. So under the under the price cap rules and the G seven sanctions, um, any EU owned vessel and um, insured is not allowed to lift any Russian crude above the price cap. And at the moment, you know, since basically since the caps came into effect, we've had quite a stable crude price environment that has essentially allowed you know flows to continue. Um, there's been some change. We've got this sort of grey shadow fleet that have come in and they've increased, they've, they're lifting a lot more. These are vessels owned from India, China, Hong Kong, UAE, et cetera. And, but now, but the Greeks have maintained quite a large share. It dropped off and it's come, it's come back up. But should we go above 90? I, I, I would think that would drop away quite a lot. The Greeks would have to go elsewhere to find business, depressing markets. And then we would have this sort of this grey fleet move back in and increase its share, which which comes with its own risks. Let's go to the survey question, which is uh, tackling the kind of headline uh, of the morning uh, discussion is, will Brent crude oil hit $90 or $80 first or next, whatever way you want to see that? Uh, we've come above 80 with the surge of the OPEC plus cut. Uh, but we haven't quite uh, sustained the momentum. We've got back to that kind of mid-80s range, as noted. Um, but will Brent crude oil hit 90 or $80 next first? Uh, your thoughts on that. Um, Omar, we're, we're looking at uh, now coming uh, sort of the next sort of big uh, monetary policy headline, the, the next round of uh, central bank rate rises and so forth, uh, the, the big expectation that the Fed will continue to raise rates. Uh, others may or may not follow uh, in terms of the ECB or the Bank of England, uh, etc. But uh, your thoughts on, on, on the intersection and relevance of that or not vis-a-vis -vis the direction of travel for the oil markets? Okay, so it's a good. Um, uh, if if you go back to the last question, which is you know how do you reconcile crude oil up and um, S and P lower? What if what if basically what we have 
what if the Fed raises rates, which they're going to do, which is not going to make a difference in inflation because they've already flooded the market with more dollars because of the banking crisis. So they haven't really withdrawn any dollars from the market. They're back to where they started before they started raising interest rates. Meanwhile, interest rates are very high, which makes basically their you know, debt uh, payments uh, unsustainable without printing even more dollars because you know they don't really pay for that. They can just print it, whereas every other country has to actually uh, earn the money to pay for uh, their dollars. So bottom line is, what if we have runaway inflation? What if uh, as a, you know, it comes as a shock to many that uh, raising interest rates to five, five and a half, six percent doesn't really dent it when uh, consumer prices are up 10 percent or even if um, um, uh, inflation in, in terms of factory price inflation is, is, you know, 15, 18, 20, whatever it is. What if it doesn't make a difference? What if basically uh, the fact that they keep printing money uh, just makes everything go haywire. In that case, it, it, you know, you have inflation, you have oil skyrocket, um, and you have basically um, uh, uh, equities dump. Uh, and why is that? Because basically treasuries keep going higher. You can buy treasuries and, and uh, at, at whatever, 5, 6, 7, 8%. And so companies in the S&P to... to to attract investor money because they entail risk because the price of Apple or Amazon or whatever it is can go up as well as down. So instead of needing to make 6% the treasury rate, they need to make 12 or 18% in terms of returns. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. If we do start to see uh, uh, runaway inflation, it's, it's, it's going to get uh, very interesting. I think what Matt was also saying about you know, the Greeks and the ship owners and all the rest of it, what it's going to, what, what's going to happen? I mean, I have, uh, we have a high conviction that oil is going to go considerably higher. Uh, so I think 90, $100 plus uh, on WTI, let alone Brent. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. I mean, whether sanctions, basically everybody forgets about them, nobody talks about them. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. And in the winter, I think it's going to get even worse. Uh, so it's going to get very interesting. Jamie, I wanted to get your thoughts on the OPEC plus decision. Uh, there's been a lot of analysis around it being a sort of a, a message of departure from its strategic geopolitical departure, or is it simply a supply demand call that the market outlook is bearish, even though OPEC plus maintained last week its forecast for 2023? Those two things seemed incongruous. You know, the idea that we're going to cut supply, but yet our forecasts are remaining the same, i.e. a fairly bullish outlook for demand recovery in the second half. Yeah, there's definitely a disconnect there between the the actions of this cohort within OPEC plus that decided to implement voluntary cuts and the actual analysis that's being put out there by the OPEC secretariat in its monthly reports at the moment. You know, I think that you know, essentially the way that the, the main section of the OPEC report read was, we see prices going higher and then, oh, by the way, lots of guys decided to implement voluntary cuts and there's a big downside risk, which is why this is appropriate. Um, you know, it was kind of a, here's the analysis of why prices are going to go higher, but here's the excuse as to why um, actually this was a great decision. Um, but yeah, as to, as to why they did it, yeah, the, the, they were definitely, there was clearly, clearly an element of pricing in there. I mean, the Russian spokesman 
although Russia's cut is separate, he said that this is supportive of prices and that's one of the key reasons. So that kind of let the cat out of the bag on that one. You know, they, whether it's whether the floor that they want is 75, 80, maybe 85 is, is neither here nor there, but clearly there is a price level that they are setting their hat on defending. And that was a key contributor here. Um, there was an element as well, I think, with regards to the US SPR, um, they were given assurances that the US was going to start refilling at a certain price level, then the, you know, the US government came out and said, actually, this is really technically challenging. And so we, yeah, despite what we said, we're not going to be doing that. They've kind of reversed ferrets on that again now, the US, and said that they are going to start refilling the SPR again. But frankly, I think we're now in a seat, you have to see it to believe it kind of territory with with that you know even if they have the intentions to do it this time around uh, are they technically capable of it i don't know i doubt many people in riyadh want to gamble on that so they're not going to be taking um u.s statements like that into their supply demand calculations i think but clearly if the u.s does come back and starts starts buying up to fill the spr then that's another demand source um which is going to come into play later on in this year I just wanted to follow up, Jamie. I know you guys at Mies do track quite closely the direction of travel for oil products coming out of the Gulf, uh, and most recently the situation with the Alzur refinery mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. Kuwait. If you might just give us a quick update there, what that might mean for crude exports, given if the refinery is in trouble. Yeah, so um, the QADs are trying to downplay the extent of the seriousness here. It's, you know, it's, fa it's fairly normal that when you have a massive new refinery being brought online, there are going to be teething problems. So nobody needs to panic about um, absorbing down at the moment. But when they say two weeks is how long it's going to take to bring it back up, fully back up to where it was beforehand with two CDUs running at pretty decent capacity, Let's, you know, I think it's fair to use an element of reasonable doubt on this. It might take, uh, it might take a month, it might take six, six weeks, two months. Um, and clearly that is going, you know, this is, let's say they're running about 400,000 barrels a day through that refinery. That's volumes that are now going to be exported directly as crude um, instead of being sent to this refinery and then exported as products. Um, and interestingly for a modern refinery, Alzur was designed to have a very high fuel oil cut. Um, so that's going to have an impact on um, very low sulfur fuel markets. It was primarily shipping out to, to Singapore on that, but it was starting to head into Fujairah. So that'll have a bit of an impact on regional markets and then middle distillates a lot of it was heading to africa actually heading into into Djibouti. so we'll see what happens with those uh, with those trade flows now as well and what about flows into europe uh, the oil uh, products that were seeming to uh, increase in their direction towards europe given the embargo against russian uh, products yeah i mean mo most of that was coming from kuwait's legacy uh mina almadi mina um Abdullah refineries, but clearly some of that might now be diverted to where Alzur was going. So it's it's all going to be up in the air as to exactly how those trade flows do uh, coalesce. But theoretically, it shouldn't have too much of an impact on Europe. Okay, Matt, last word with you with the survey result, which is kind of overwhelmingly uh, in favor of 90 rather than 80. But I have to admit, I'm an 80 man myself. Uh, uh, but the... Um, your thoughts on uh, where is the, you know, you started out your comments this morning, and there's a lot of stress on the availability of tankers, given the longer distances of over a billion barrel, 1.2 billion barrels en route at longer distance, however way you want to characterize that oil on water. Uh, what is the outlook for that easing or does that stress just magnify when these cuts start to happen by OPEC plus? Um. It, it, it shouldn't get worse. You know, when we got cuts, you essentially have 
a drop in demand. But what we might see is, you know, if we see a cut from the Middle East, we might see more supply, more exports from the US. So a lot of this really will depend on what China does, how much, you know, I think March was um, one of the highest months for Chinese crude imports. So if we see China continue to buy firmly over spring, summer, um, it could actually be very positive for tanker demand because we could see barrels coming from the Atlantic Basin all the way to, to Asia. So as as with everything, China China sort of holds the keys to what's going to happen, I think, over the next couple of months. Well, we'll certainly have to keep a close eye on it. But I think increasingly the, the, the eyes also have to be on... Uh, where is the demand centers or, or, or the consumption in, in Europe and the US? Because ultimately, the Chinese have to sell their Barbie dolls to somebody. And if uh, little Susie in Oklahoma isn't buying Barbie dolls this Christmas, you know, the, the, the factory manufacturing uh, out of China slows down. And that seems to be the, the general narrative at the moment. Less trucks on the roads in China, less manufacturing, even though there is a reporting of an upswing in, in consumption from the global south. Uh, the, the trend of traffic in the uh, G7 economies has to be uh, a major indicator as to whether uh, Brent crude oil can break higher or lower. Um, we will wait to see. But as always, Omar Najia, great to have you on Monday uh, mornings. Uh, uh, Jamie Ingram, thank you so much. Getting up hopefully not as early as before in London with that hour change. And looks like you're getting some nice sunlight already this morning. Matt as well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a great day, everybody. We're here every morning at 10.30 UAE time. And as we started, Brent is little change this morning at about $86 a barrel. Thank you.